there's many ways to prepare people. You can't, those at the top can either tell you directly, we're going to do this and give you a date and so on, or they, they break it to you gently. And the form of debates, debates between experts, and really you simply take the expert that suits you best and you take his opinion. That's how it's done. That's what media is for, to get us ready for the changes that are already pre-planned. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. What you find when you study history and biographies of people who've been high-level bureaucrats or they've worked in civil service or the military for their whole lives at high positions is that they're always planning a future. We think at the bottom, and we're meant to think at the bottom, that we just stumble day to day and problems crop up and are dealt with on the spot by experts who debate for a couple of days and then make a decision and make it all right again. That's how we're taught. We're really infantile at the bottom. We're kept like children, truly. And, and I say mushrooms often because that's how you grow mushrooms in commercial growing. You're, you're kept in the dark and you're, you're fed uh, different kinds of bovine fecal matter. That's how we are at the bottom. We have a complete reality made for us. And because our parents swallow that reality then the child is born and takes over their, their parents' opinions. There's no one to warn them that this is fake, this is a con, and uh, that really were the slaves at the bottom. Slaves at one time that were very, very important. Uh, they came out of serfdom, which was slavery. In, in the Western world, they don't like to call them slaves. They like to call them serfs. It sounds better. But you were bought and sold with the land. And they, they, there were different rebellions from the peasants occasionally that would come along and frighten the upper crust, who were always terrified of them being too many of them, and they could overcome their armies or their knights and, and all the rest of it. So they gave us a, a thing called democracy. And really a brief period of, of a time when we could keep more of our earnings uh, to, for things we didn't really need. See, before, the serfs used to give about 60% of all their, their harvest to their lords. And those were the days, remember, of uh, there was no intensive farming and uh, as heavy manual work, heavy, heavy labor, labor intensive. And therefore, the farmer was left, the serf was left with enough to feed himself, the livestock, and maybe a couple of helpers. And that was about it. The Lord would take his, his cut, pass it up to his overlord, the baron or whatever, and it went all the way up to the king. Basically, that's how the system worked. Uh, much like the Soviet Union was run. And then they gave us democracy, th thinking that if we get to vote every four or five years, then our agitation will be somewhat subdued if we think that we have uh, a chance of voting the last corrupt bunch out and getting in the, ne the next bunch. You live in hope, you see. It's a hopeful sort of idea. But we're always disappointed, and, and most folk never in their whole lives catch on uh, that there's only one game going on, and there's only one party. Even though, as I say, big players and even uh, authorized historians 
for the Council on Foreign Relations come out with books and tell us that there's only one party and they all belong to the, the, the ones at the top always belong to the Council on Foreign Relations and had done in the 1960s for 60 years according to Professor Carl Quigley who was given access to their records and in Britain of course it's called the Royal Institute for International Affairs now they have a European Institute for International Affairs it's the same bunch and every British Commonwealth country has a Department of International Affairs. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a governmental department. That's the beauty of it. It's, it. And it even says on most of its books, in fact, when it tells you, and, and thanks Rockefeller for publishing this book, because that's who funds them, uh, it will tell you it's a non-political organization. Then you, when you read through their books, you see nothing about what you would think at the bottom is politics. But they're not discussing politics. They're simply laying down policy. Big difference. There's a big difference when you're not playing politics. You're simply there to make an agenda and to, to put down and iron out the, the problems for this agenda, to make way for it, to make it easier to put into effect in society. And they have all kinds of meetings across the world, and they also have round tables. After the big meetings, they take select people, put them down at round tables, and they give them each a particular problem to solve. How do, we, how do we get this particular program into the minds of the public? And they'll talk about set, setting up front groups, other front groups and NGOs, for instance, and funding them, and green parties and all that kind of stuff to bring down population, because that's the real, the, the real agenda there. It's nothing to do with saving the world. It's a front. But... They're always, even when there's a Cold War going on, what you notice is they've already planned a post-Cold War period. And you often wonder when you're reading the biographies of the big players, how on earth did they know? How could they be absolutely sure that the Cold War wasn't going to go on for another 20, 30 years? I mean, technically, there was no reason why it couldn't, you see. And they'd already had the future planned post-Cold War. And one of their big, big problems was, guess what? A post-industrial society. Because, you see, in their 1930s books, 1938, I think it was, at one global meeting, the Royal Institute for International Affairs had even talked about China and, and how strong China would become commercially. And it could even be the industrial leader for the future. And when they wrote that, China, technically, it was a third-world country a few very rich people and a mass of peasants but they, they even had in that particular 1938 meeting in Australia it was held that year uh, the, the upcoming war with Germany it was a done deal it hadn't started yet but it was a done deal you see and they even said who they'd support they'd have to save Russia at all costs why would you save what seemed to be your main enemy they wanted to wipe out, you'd think, the royal family and all that kind of stuff and all the aristocrats. Why would you want to save them? It was traditional for Britain, for instance, in bygone centuries to arm one of your enemies and let them go at it with some other enemy. And that way they'd weaken each other. Why would you allow Germany simply to go at it with Russia and you get rid of your two main enemies? But they didn't. They said they'd have to save Russia at all costs. It isn't until you go further back that you realize that the West and the banking system and the establishment funded and set up the Soviet experiment, as it was called, 
Trotsky even complained in his writings. He complained about uh, Lenin and then, then Stalin bringing over all the British aristocrats, lords and ladies and so on, and giving them grand tours of Moscow, etc. Well listed. H.G. Wells and all these boys went across there and they loved it. And they were all members of the Fabian Society, another branch, you see, of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. They have specialized branches. But, as I say, the big problem early on was how to control a big population in a post-industrial era, post-World War II even. And remember, during World War II, Britain signed an agreement under the United Nations to deindustrialize. It wasn't just disarmament. It was deindustrialization. And many other countries followed suit because they'd already decided they were going to set up China as the model state for the whole world that we have to emulate. And I spoke about this a few years back there. People kind of, oh, come on. We could never emulate China. And, and we're doing it, doing it in so many different ways. And how is it done? Well, it's the same way as I said. The media is there to prepare your minds and it's like planting a field. You can't plant a field by scattering seed. You've got to get in there, and you've got to plow it up, and then you've got to get rid of all the weeds, and you've got to get rid of the stones, and then you've got to furrow it and harrow it and all the rest of it. And then if the soil is ready for it, the right season, you start planting. That's what they do with your mind. They give you years of subtle indoctrination. They call it consciousness raising. Whenever you hear that term, run away, it means they're trying to brainwash you without you knowing it. In other words, they're bringing a topic, not just a topic, with, an, with a solution to the topic into your head without you really voluntarily working your way through any of it, just accepting the conclusion. Yes. Raising consciousness awareness, and public awareness. That's what it means. And you'll see, find the same big players intergenerationally going down through time, as psychopathic and as adamant as their forefathers were. I've talked about the Optimum Population Trust, this massively wealthy organization that admits it's a, a rich white man's club, basically, who don't, uh, they're, not, they're not ashamed of, of, of that at all. They believe that it's nature's way, and those who are, have survival of the fittest qualities should be the top, deciding what they want to do with the rest of the world. And they do what they want with the rest of the world. Sir Crispin Tickle, amazing guy. And contrary to this last part of his name, Tickle is not a very funny character at all. He is rather crisp, though. And this character, if you look into Wikipedia, was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And he's the grandson, or the great-grandson of Jessica Huxley, the Huxley family. Now, the Huxleys are are through all of them. The Darwins, the Huxleys, all these characters are all part of the same family origins. And it's as though they were clones of their forefathers because they had the same agenda. Depopulation, survival of the fittest, they should be the top. And they're well funded, obviously. And, and they just sail up through the British aristocracy up to top positions in the country and politics. And they're generally elected to things given lots of titles and letters behind their names, which they don't even earn, generally. And they're always grand commanders and all the rest of it. 
uh, all that kind of stuff. And this guy, Tickle, was appointed to the United Nations uh, on the, per- the Permanent Security Council. But he's been ambassador to do so many different things. President of the European Commission, for instance, 7880. Uh, ambassador to Mexico and all the rest of it. And we talk more about Mr. Tickle, not so funny guy, after this break. Cutting through the matrix, the, discussing really the big policy makers at the top, the one, how they get ideas across to us, the public at the bottom, how they prepare our minds for things, often years and years in advance. The other night, in fact, I mentioned uh, a movie made in 1971, Zero Population Growth, it was called. And they started a long time ago influencing us, mainly through fiction to begin with, to the public. Uh, through books and then movies, and uh, such as um, that last movie, but also Soil and Green was was one of them. And Soil and Green was written uh, under the title "Make Room, Make Room." The whole idea was to get everybody terrified about a future of of overpopulation. Now, the reality from books I have on population management, going back to the, to the early 1900s, had people writing rebuffs in their books uh, to Britain, who in 1920, was, was the, from the top again, the aristocracy, two years after World War I had, had killed millions of people. Um, the rebuffs were about the fact that uh, Britain and the aristocracy, and even the Churchills too were, were very vocal on this, wanted the, the, the ordinary people to start curbing the, their sizes of their family, and, and when you and the rebuffs had had the the, the numbers of families of of uh, children that these big aristocratic families had, which were much much bigger than the people at the bottom, and they had the statistics too, which showed you that Britain had been declining, and the later books proved this too. Britain had been de- declining in family size. For years and years, right up to the present, if it wasn't for mass immigration and the appearance of overcrowding, which is true, uh, the more they bring into the same cities that are overcrowded, they were never meant to, to have so many people in the first place. But it gives, it gives appearance of overcrowding, then they turn around and blame the people who'd done all the right things. And, and often they'd had only one child per family or two maximum. That keeps a stable population at two. And many of them opted for no children at all. So you can't please your masters. You see, that was never the intention. The intention is a world society, remember. A world society. They have no favorites. Those who rule England have no favorites in countries. And they're international. And their goal, again, according to their old books that they wrote themselves, people who worked for this global society, uh, their, their goal was to treat every country the same eventually. So you'd all have to give the appearance of being overcrowded. And that's why, about the 60s onwards, the Western countries put a cap on urban development. They called it urban sprawl, again, using terminology, psycholinguistics. Sounds nasty, sprawling. You're sprawling all over the floor. You're untidy, you see, sprawl. And so whenever people talked about the size of, of urban areas, they'd always call it, they start parroting it, urban sprawl, urban sprawl, you see. That's how 
So therefore, they made laws that you couldn't expand urban areas. You only build on existing properties or where existing properties were being torn down. You'd rebuild again, higher and higher. Because they wanted to contain people, not just to stop them from growing out into the countryside, but really they wanted to bring in a controlled society, a surveyed surveilled society, a society where they'd have cameras, etc., everywhere, like we have today. All planned on long, before we were born it was planned. That's the amazing thing. And when I've gone through the histories, I go into the audio archive section of cuttingthroughthematrix.com, you'll see the audio archives, and I've gone through the histories of the eugenics movement, and how uh, they, they simply were open at the beginning about uh, the right of the fittest to survive. And they used to have even magazines about the, the most fit um, American family of the month. And they'd have photographs of them all, well-to-do, um, very healthy, etc. But they were also very vocal on the need to eliminate the unfit. Hitler never dreamed up that idea by himself. I've gone through the writings of, of the various British authors who first came out with this whole thing and the Soviet story and go into that and you'll hear the socialist program socialism like the Fabian society uh, really came out with all of this stuff to begin with long before Adolf Hitler and all of that came from Darwin and Darwin's uh, theories on the ascent of man etc and these are theories they're taken uh, as law today. All, all science programs teach evolution as fact, absolute fact, and you can't contradict it or even question it, or you're out. Plain and simple. And what they do at the top is to put out certain people from their own ranks in every country who are all connected. Maurice Strong for Canada, etc., Al Gore in the States, um, Crispin uh, Tickle in Britain they all put the characters out to start off and start funding or at least channeling the funding from the foundations which is the parallel government the real government uh, into the creation of non-governmental organizations and they indoctrinate the public over years they go into schools as charitable institutions to educate children uh, and what they're doing is brainwashing them along a particular way of thinking and a particular viewpoint. We've all heard the tape of Al Gore. He's up on YouTube or somewhere. And I gave the link once too. That'll be in the audio archive sections as well, or previous shows, where you hear him talking to children about 12 and under. And he said, you children know things your parents don't know. And he's talking about the environment and, and pollution and all the rest of the global warming. Bypass the parents. That's how they do it in school. Back with more after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. through the matrix just showing you how they put out all these characters in every generation that work on the same projects and often they're from the same families they're like clones of their daddies you might say 
much like the Rothschilds, they keep, they, they keep into banking. These characters literally are into eugenics. And back in the, the, the 70s, as I say, they hit upon the idea of, of giving them an excuse to bring down the population. They call it sustainable development uh, under the guise that if they just convince the public we were destroying the planet, we were all going to die, then, then the government could step in and start mandating population control. That's what it's about. Now, remember, too, they've had a Department of Population Control at the United Nations. That was all part of that movement, too. And where the United Nations is honest about it, they'll say, well, you see, we don't abort children across the world. That's true. They, they just help the NGOs. They're all umbrellaed underneath them to abort children across the world. And they're funded through various government agencies in, in, in the Western world. And they're funded, again, uh, massively by the big foundations, tax-free foundations that are the parallel governments. But here's this guy, Tickle, getting back to Tickle again, the not-so-funny guy. And this is his worldwide status as an authority on climate change is all the more surprising because there's no formal academic training in this area and has formed his opinion by self-teaching. Well, he was always a eugenicist, as was his daddy's before him. And they were part of this idea to, to bring the environment, a war with the environment and man, a, a war enterprise, as the first um, global revolution book says, by the Club of Rome. That's the, they dreamed up that scam, that man was at war with the planet. Therefore, uh, to save the planet and the rest of man, that man would have to start getting reduced in population, basically, and stop using energy. Just your tickle helped to write Margaret Thatcher's speech on global, global climate change. See, these guys are into everything at the top. They're always appointed, never elected. She chaired John Major's government panel on sustainable development from 94 to 2000 and was a member of two government's task forces under the Labour Party, one on urban regeneration, which is actually restriction, which is double speed, of course, and various other projects. It says here, a man of strong environmental convictions, he's been described as influential in Britain, although his environmental message has not always travelled as easily abroad, particularly to the United States. His 1977 book called Climate Change and World Affairs argued that mandatory international pollution control would eventually be necessary. That's after the Club of Rome came up with the idea of, of coupling eugenics with pollution and, and so on. Despite his non-scientific background, his international respect is having a strong grasp of science policy issues. He's got 23 honorary doctorates. That's how they get him up there, because we stand in awe at all these letters behind someone's name. But that's how they do it, just, just give him all these honorary doctorates. I don't know if they even have to attend to get it. You know, probably send it by mail or something. It says here, he's also patron of the Optimum Population Trust. Now, we know all about them and what their goal is too. Again, a non-governmental organization that just happens to, to give advice to governments. This is the ideal population size for Britain could be around 20 million. That means an awful lot has to go. An awful, awful lot has to go, don't they? This is what you're dealing with. These characters have never stopped their agenda from Charles Darwin onwards. And from Australia, Here's an article from the AAP. Green Group calls for one-child policy. Now, it's interchangeable with the speeches given by uh, Tickle and others because it's all the same script, you see. 
This is from April 21st, 2009. Australia consider ha- should consider having a one-child policy to protect the planet. An environmental lobby group says, Sustainable Population Australia, that's just another branch of the same group, says slashing the world's population, slashing the world's population is the only way to avoid environmental suicide. National President Sandra Kenk wants Australia's population of almost 22 million reduced to 7 million to tackle climate change. Restricting each couple to one baby as China does. Now, what did I say earlier? China, and it's been said on the CBC, it's been said at the United Nations and elsewhere, China is a model state for the world. That means we have all to copy China. Now, China is not a democracy either. These are honest about it. I wish these guys that pretend we're still democracy here would be honest about it too. But pigs might fly when the swine flu comes. It says, uh, yeah, each couple to one baby, as China does, is the one way of assisting to reduce the population. It's something we need to throw into the mix, the former Democrats parliamentarian said. More people means more coal-fired electricity, cars, houses, water use and food production, all of which increase greenhouse gas emissions, she says, which is utter nonsense. But it's the same script, isn't it? They can't say anything different from each other. It's exactly the same as each other. Then she has her dig at the Catholic. The Catholic Church is going to be in like Flynn in an argument like this, she says. Sustainable Populist Australia, which is about 1,300 members, is so worried about climate change, so worried they are, right? It's preparing a formal submission to the United Nations. Now, what the places is the United Nations? There are no people in any country in the world that voted it into existence. It is not a democratic institution. It's not even a country. It's a corporation. The leaders of every country, who were traitors all, signed every country over to it in 1946. And this is where everything is to go. It's a front organization for the real government, which is the comprised of the parallel uh, government, the, the, the various foundations. Foundations that are owned by international bankers, we all know that, who also own the big international pharma companies and who own the, the military-industrial complex. They own the United Nations. And it's run through the eugenics scheme as well. And it's utterly frantic about population numbers, always has been. And they've been caught doing dirty deeds across the planet before to reduce the population. I've read so many articles here, I can't remember them all. So anybody, anyone who wants to be successful in this day and age has to belong to one of these groups and just get the script and read it, you know. And you'll get lots of airtime because the mainstream media will give you plenty of airtime for free and just pirate whatever you want. They'll put down in print whatever you want. They never give any uh, anyone uh, space to counter the BS that they put across to, to us. Never. And as I say, here's, here's an article here where at least some scientists were, I guess, against their, their boss. When he tried to use the organization along the roads of depopulation, cutting back energy, and, and global warming. And this is from Mark Morano. 
says, world's largest science group rejecting man-made climate fears. July 31st, 2009, newswithviews.com. An outpouring of skeptical scientists who are members of the American Chemical Society are revolting against the group's editor-in-chief, with some demanding he be removed after an editorial appeared claiming the science of anthropogenic climate change is becoming increasingly well-established, I mean man-made. The editorial claimed the consensus view was growing increasingly difficult to challenge despite the efforts of die-hard climate change deniers. Now, they're all told at one of their big world meetings to use this term, climate change deniers, that would be associated with the Holocaust. I mean, you feel guilty. I've got the article here where they came up with it and actually told their members to say this. So this, this guy, this editor, is obviously a member, you see. It says the editor now admits he's startled by the negative reaction from the group's scientific members. The American Chemical Society builds itself as the world's largest scientific society. So it, tell, it tells you what he printed here, about Holocaust, about Holocaust um, climate change deniers. And it also has some uh, answers by other people, other scientists in the group, and what they say about Mr. Bomb, his name is. It says, in addition, the scientists called Bomb's editorial disgusting, a disgrace filled with misinformation, unworthy of a scientific periodical and pap. That's what they say. One outraged ACS member wrote to Bomb, when all is said and done, and you and your kind are proven wrong again. You will have, a, you will have moved on to, an unthink, uh, to be an unthinking urn for another rat pleading catastrophe. You will be removed, I promise. And it's true, they go from one crisis to another, these guys. They know where their bread is buttered. Bomb wrote in July 27 that he was startled and surprised by the contempt and vehemence of the ACS scientist to his view of the global warming consensus. Because there isn't consensus, is it? And then it's got more and more uh, selected excerpts of the skeptical scientists. I think it's time we find a new editor, ACS member Thomas Dambra wrote. Geochemist R. Everett Langford wrote, I'm appalled at the condescending attitude of Rundy Bomb, Al Gore, President Barack Obama et al., who essentially tell us there is no need for further research, that the matter is solved. And that's really what they've said, isn't it? said that's it, the matter is resolved, you can't go any further with questioning, that's it, it's the law. Well, what kind of science is that? What kind of science is that? Science is supposed to get to the root of all things and constantly go on and on and on. But they've already said, no, that's, that's it, that's good enough for us. And one other scientist said, your editorial was a disgrace, it was filled with misinformation, half-truths and ad hominem attacks on those who dare disagree with you. Shameful. And it says, one says, do you refer to climate change as of global warming because the claim of anthropogenic global warming has become increasingly contrary to fact. Another one asked them what, uh, what set of, of statistics he'd taken all his, his advice from, basically. Of the ten different uh, studies that have been done, but with ten different computers, each one, each time they, they do a different computer test, they get a different bunch of information. You know, it's all it's all nonsense because behind it all is the one cause. The one cause being a very old cause, and that's depopulation of the lessers. You know, the wrong sort of people on the planet to bring in a utopia where the better kind uh, will live in peace and harmony. 
together. These sons and daughters of knights and aristocracy that slaughtered their way to fame over centuries, all living in harmony with each other, supposedly. But they want to get rid of everyone else in the meantime. After all, we're eating up, you see, all the, all the food that their children could be eating in the future. And why should the lesser type, you know, the, the, the non-producing, the, the non-qualified type, uh, be eating up all their food? Never mind the fact that it's the lesser type that make all their food for the greater type, isn't it? Quite something. Quite something, really. It's quite something. Now, there's a link I want to put up. If people don't think that the pharma companies are part of the military-industrial complex, as I said before, there's a book that was called um, Canada's Secret War, uh, and uh, Deadly Allies is the main title, Deadly Allies, Canada's Secret War, written by a Toronto Star reporter. Fascinating because he used declassified information from the Canadian, British, and American governments to show that Canada was, was the, the lead country for bacterial and viral warfare in World War II onwards. And in this Stimson History of the U.S. Offensive Biological Warfare Program, you'll find here, and I'll give you the links. Remember to go on my site at the end of the show, cuttingthroughmatrix.com. You'll see the links and check it out for yourself. This is says here, August 1942, George Merck, we've all known of the Merck Company, president of the American Company, pharmaceutical company, accepts a position as head of the newly created War Research Service, the coordinating agency that joins government and private institution resources to carry out the U.S. biological warfare program. Head by a small cadre of well-connected individuals, the WRS begins to conduct research at dozens of American universities, Canadians as well, and British. Simultaneously, WRS encourages the Chemical Warfare Service to expand its examination of biological weapons potential and construct its research facilities. The initial allocation in 1942 for the WRS totals $200,000. Meanwhile, the Chemical Warfare Service receives millions of dollars to construct research facilities. It then goes into the development of the facility at Camp Dietrich in Frederick, Maryland. Camp Dietrich becomes operational that year with about 4,000 personnel. It's renamed Fort Dietrich in 1956. In 1943, WRS, now remember, this is the combined pharma companies that make the vaccines, working at the top. They were the top uh, of the, of the military-industrial complex dealing with bio-warfare. And why else? Why not? They were already experts in viruses and, and bacteria. Where else would you go? That was their job, experimenting with viruses and bacteria. January 1943, WRS is running programs to explore the essential potential of botulinum toxin and anthrax. These particular, particular agents remain the focus of the offensive program during the remaining World War II years. And it's got a whole bunch of facts after it and how it expanded and expanded and expanded. Quite something. I've even mentioned on previous shows how the big uh, Canadian pharma companies and laboratories, one main one that was dealing with the blood products, that brought in contaminated blood uh, and blood products to Canada from the U.S., they knew it was contaminated was set up in World War II as part of this um, biowarfare industry. There's a CBC documentary on it. 
quite something, isn't it? It's all part of it. These are the ones who want to give us injections. Now, bear in mind, uh, on the previous articles I've been talking about, they want to reduce the population of the planet drastically. And I've given you enough evidence to show you. And these guys are deadly, deadly serious. Deadly serious. There's a, a good article here by Jeffrey Smith. It says, you're appointing who? Please, Obama, say it's not so. <clears throat> and I'll send this, I'll put this link up on my site as well. It says, it says, when the FDA was constructing their GMO policy in 91-92, their scientists were clear that gene-sliced foods were significantly different and could lead to different risks than conventional foods. But official policy declared the opposite, claiming that the FDA knew nothing of significant differences and declared GMOs substantially equivalent. That's how they passed it through law. No, no testing or anything or checking into it. Substantially equivalent. That was good enough, you see. This fiction became the rationale for allowing GM foods on the market without any required safety studies whatsoever. The determination of whether GM foods were safe to eat was placed entirely in the hands of the companies that made them. Back in a moment with more on this article after this break. through the matrix, tying things together to show you why things really happen. And right now I'm talking about the GMO foods being placed, the, the whole the determination of whether the foods were safe to eat was placed entirely in the hands of the companies that made them. Companies like Monsanto, which told us that PCBs, DDT, and Agent Orange were safe. That's Monsanto. She's part of the military-industrial complex. Why is a military-industrial complex, complex in charge of your food supply? Well, if you make war on the public, what do people need? Food, water, shelter, clothing, energy. What's happening today? It's all been taken over by small cliques of people because it's a war against the people, you see. That's why. Since GMOs were rushed onto a plate in 96, over the next nine years, multiple chronic illnesses in the U.S. nearly doubled from 7% to 13%. Allergy-related emergency room visits doubled between 97 and 2002, while food allergies, especially among children, skyrocketed. We're also witnessing a dramatic rise in asthma, autism, obesity, diabetes, digestive disorders, and certain cancers. These things, by the way, they already knew these characters who said it was okay for us to eat, the guys who made the GMO, because they tested all this out on all the different animals and found the same things happening. Therefore, it tells me this is intended to happen. I don't believe in these accidents, you see. No, this is intended to happen, because every government's pushing this stuff as a must-be. A must-be. In January of this year, Dr. P.M. Bergava, one of the world's top biologists, told me after, after reviewing 600 scientific journals, he concluded that GM foods in the U.S. are largely responsible for the increase in many serious diseases. 
In May, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine concluded that animal studies have demonstrated a causal relationship between GM foods and infertility. See, this hits all the warfare goals, isn't it? Infertility, bring down the population, accelerated aging, dysfunctional insulin regulation. We see diabetes everywhere. Changes in major organs and the gastrointestinal system and immune problems such as asthma, allergies, and inflammation. In July, a report by eight international experts determined that the flimsy and superficial evaluations of GMOs by both regulators and GM companies systematically overlook the side effects. Systematically overlook the side effects and significantly underestimate the initial signs of diseases like cancer and disease of the hormonal, immune, nervous, and reproductive system, amongst others. See, nothing is by chance. You don't get things happening on this scale by chance. And if you truly had governments that really worked for the people, which they never have, they'd be investigating all of this because they'd be terrified too. Well, they're not terrified too. Why? Because they're not eating the same crap that you're eating at the bottom. They do have the little passports to the good food supplies at the top. That's part of the little benefits. And it also helps to keep them in the clubs, you see. They're very, very faithful to the clubs. And just one last link. And this is to do with the, the, the link between bisphenol A and and what's happening with insulin. Because, you see, the estrogen receptor, ERA, is absolutely connected to pancreatic insulin content regulation. I'll put this up on my site as well to show you how all these things interact with each other. And that's why, again, they put estrogen in all of your plastics. They made it a popular thing to do, drinks out of plastic bottles. That's it for tonight. So from Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God, or your gods, go with you.